Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman, and today I'm talking with Lucy Fisher, who is a type 1 diabetic and who practices intermittent fasting. Now, I wouldn't have thought that these two go together because I would have thought that fasting would be dangerous for type 1 diabetics. But I'm happy to report that Lucy put me straight, as well as for other conclusions that I may have jumped to. So we'll get to our chat in just a minute. And this week's episode of the Life After Sugar podcast is brought to you by the After Sugar Club, where you'll get all the resources you need to help you make those small but powerful mindset shifts and get guidance step-by-step step on your personal path to feeling free from sugar so that you can get to a place where you don't even want it, need it or miss sugar anymore. You'll be part of a friendly, encouraging community of health-conscious people just like you. Most of us are also intermittent fasters, but not all of us. There's a place for everyone. You can sign up at aftersugarclub.com and click on the green button, join the club. All right, here's my chat with Lucy Fisher. So I'm talking with Lucy, who is a type 1 diabetic. Nice to see you, Lucy. Nice to see you too. Can you tell me a little bit about your story, how you found out that you were type 1 diabetic? Yeah, sure. So I was diagnosed in 1997. I was 17 years old. It was 24 years ago. Uh, I'm 41 years old now. And I was in college. I was in my freshman year of college and I had all the classic symptoms of type one diabetes. I was, you know, peeing a lot, drinking a lot of water, sleeping like 23 hours a day. I essentially stopped going to class and I was a straight A student. It was just a really tough time. And I went to the health center and they dismissed me because I was I ran cross country and track and swimming and rugby. I was playing all kinds of sports and I was very, very in shape. And they just said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're probably just stressed out because you're away from home and just kind of manage your stress levels and don't worry about it. So I went back to my dorm and I was just like, okay, I guess there's nothing wrong with me. And uh, I went to, I had a job on campus and it was at a vending machine company. And the woman there uh, who was my manager, my boss, she had type two diabetes and she had a blood glucose monitor at work. And she said, can I test your blood sugar? She said, your symptoms sound, you know, I, she was like, I know what this is. So she tested my blood sugar and it was like five or 600 or something like that. And I had no concept of what that meant. And she just turned like ghost white. And she said, you know, you need to go back to the health center and you need them to test your blood sugar because you know, you're, you're sick, you're really sick. And so I went back and I said, can you guys test my blood sugar? And then they, you know, they tested it and then they called me and they said, you have type one diabetes. You need to come to the hospital. We need to get you on insulin. And, 
and yeah, I mean, it was like a whole whirlwind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, then, and yeah. How did they determine that it was type one rather than type two? Uh, well, so I was 17 when I got it. And at that point it was really just either you have type one or you have type two and type one means that you're, it's a juvenile disease. So if, if you were under, I think it was under 18, you definitely had type one. If you were over 18, they thought you had type two. Now things have changed where you can get type one. I have a friend, she's in her sixties and she got type one. So it can, it can vary over time, but basically type one means that you're insulin dependent, fully insulin dependent. Your beta cells are no longer and your pancreas are no longer working. If you have type two, you do have some beta cell functioning. So you may use a drug like metformin or something like that to kind of help help your beta cells, you know, produce insulin and you know reduce your insulin resistance. So type twos have some level of pancreatic functioning. Type ones don't. You know, that's right. it. Okay. And is it not? I I'd read that it was an autoimmune condition. Type it is one. An auto- yeah. Yes, it is. Which means that are you born with it? There's different theories about how long, you know, you may have had diabetes in, in your body. So for me, I, I, I still have a working theory that, uh, well, when I was in, in college, I played rugby and I got really, really sick, like one of the worst flus of my whole life. And I was just dead sick, but I really wanted to play. We were in like a state playoff or something like that. And it was, it was snowing and I was just, you know, I just went out there and I played anyway. And I thought, I literally thought I was going to die in the the bus ride home. And then not too long after that is when all my symptoms really started kicking up. But a lot of people say, you know, sometimes you just need some sort of major illness to sort of like, just be the final, the end to your pancreas. You know what I mean? So it might've been that my pancreas was just sort of functioning on like some lower level, but then once I got sick, it just killed the whole thing off, you know, all the beta cells. Huh? Yes. Is there type one in your family? No, I'm the, the lucky one. There's no autoimmune, no type one, nothing. Okay. <laughs> You're the special one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you got this diagnosis, type one. How did you feel when you got told that? Well, I, we had a family friend and uh, they had a daughter and she was, she must've been a toddler when she was diagnosed. And so we were very close with them and I would observe her. And this is in this is in like the eighties and nineties when I was, you know, when I, when I would see her and I saw her giving herself injections and her parents giving herself, giving her injections. And she was always wincing in pain. And I just thought, Oh my God, this is going to be terrible. Like when I got diagnosed, it was, it it really felt like it was the end of the world for me. Um, And it, it was tough. It was really tough. And in the beginning, the technology wasn't good. I wasn't testing my blood sugar very often. The test strips were not as advanced as they are now, and they took a lot of blood. I mean, you really had to just milk your finger to get all the blood out of there and get it onto the strip. And then half the time the strip wouldn't work and it took a minute to test it. And the strips were expensive and I was a college kid. And I just, I would probably test myself maybe four times a day. And, you know, at any given time of the day, my blood sugar might be a hundred, but then you check me, then I eat something and then you check me 30 minutes later and I'm up 350 or 400 and I could stay there for three or four hours if I don't know. And then, you know, it, it's just, it was just a total crapshoot. So it was a, a miracle that I, uh, you know, was able to maintain my blood sugars as well as I, as I was, which wasn't great, but it was good enough to get me by. And so how much support did you get as a type one diabetic from the, your doctors or like the medical establishment? Yeah. So, you know, I would go to the endocrinologist every single quarter to refill my prescriptions. And, uh, you know, it was very, it's very perfunctory, you know, that you just go in, they test your hemoglobin A1C 
And basically they always told me, try to stay below seven. I think, uh, you know, most people that don't have diabetes are somewhere below five. So yes. if you can think about five to seven, you know, seven is, um, I can't remember what the seven, what seven uh, correlates to in terms of like an average blood sugar, but it might be like 160 or 180. It's not, it's not a good blood sugar. A normal blood sugar is, you know, basically between 80 and hundred, hundreds kind of on the high side. Um, so yeah. So they tell you, they, they take your A1C, they give you your prescriptions. Maybe they talk to you for five minutes about, you know, what, what are you doing health wise or, you know, diet wise exercise, and then that's it. And then you're on your way. Okay. So it was sort of a, a logical approach to things, you know, mathematical, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, you have a carb ratio, an insulin to carb ratio. You have an insulin sensitivity factor, meaning like if my blood sugar is 200, how much insulin do I take to get it to 100? And, you know, you have you have certain ratios that you, you know, you have a basal rate, which is your underlying insulin in your pump. So they would talk about those kind of settings. And that's that's pretty much it. And at any time, did anyone ever explain to you um, what it, what would have either caused type one, whether it's genetic or any other or environmental, or even what you could do for your diet in relation to the, your type one diabetes? No, nobody really talked to me about diet. Now, what is interesting is when I was diagnosed, my parents took me to a naturopathic doctor when I was 17 and the doctor. So when you get type one diabetes, your beta cells are almost dead, but they're not quite, they have like a little bit of fight left in them and it's called a honeymoon period. So when I got it, we went to the naturopathic doctor immediately. And he said, we can prolong this honeymoon period as long as, you know, a long time, maybe even indefinitely, which I, I don't know if you can do it indefinitely, but you can definitely prolong it. And he said, but this is the thing you can't eat carbs. You have to eat, you know, it was basically a keto diet before a keto diet was a thing. Um, and he said, you can have a little bit of whole wheat. Um, you can have one whole wheat tortilla a day and that's your only carb that you can have. And so I did it for a while, but I was kind of miserable. It was, it was a hard diet for a 17 year old to maintain, but that was the one and only time anybody had talked to me about diet. And when they were telling you about carbs, did they mean flour, sugar carbs, or did they also include vegetable and fruit carbs? Yeah, he gave me the, the doctor gave me a, a long list of foods. And he said, this is the glycemic index for every single food item. And you need to stick with the ones that have a low glycemic index so that you don't spike your, your blood sugar. So they were working with the glycemic index rather than the glycemic load. Uh, I don't really know the difference, but perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because what has come up um, in all my sort of research, and I'm no scientist, but <laughs> um, is that there is a difference between the glycemic index, which is, yes, how much a food will spike your blood sugar compared to pure glucose. That's, I think, their baseline, right? Um, and then glycemic load is to is a little bit more subtle to do with the size of the portion of that particular food. So, um, and, other, and other factors that, as far as I understand it, that will affect your blood sugar level in more subtle ways. It's a, it's a more subtle approach than just the glycemic index. Yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, I should probably look into that a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. So, um, okay. So hardly anyone, at least in the sort of regular medical field, talked to you about what you could be eating to at least help you keep your blood sugars as stable as they can be when you're type one. Is that right? Yeah. Well, actually I should, I should caveat that. So 
you, you know, the, it's been popular thinking, and I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with this. Look, I want everybody to eat in a way that makes them happy and they feel good. So the general way of thinking with type one diabetics, and when you go to the doctor, I think is you can eat whatever you want, but you need to cover your food with insulin. And, you know, I've done, I've done it both ways. Obviously I've done low carb in my life Atkins, and that that's kind of what the naturopathic doctor put me on to today, which we can talk about, but I've eaten every which way in between, including high carb, high sugar, high, high everything. And yes, you can, you can cover your food with insulin. You, you can do it, but it's, it's harder. It's much harder. And, you know, as diabetics, we call it the roller coaster, the blood sugar roller coaster, highs, lows, highs, lows. And a lot of times if, if you eat a meal that's high in carb, even if you're dosing yourself with insulin, insulin is, it's not your own pancreas. So it's, it's hard to get it completely precise. And if you're off, even just by a little bit, you can end up with lows and highs and you can be on that roller coaster. But yes, the general way of thinking in the diabetic community, I think nowadays too, is, you know, eat whatever you want, but just cover yourself with insulin. And it sounds like a very similar message that is sent to non-diabetics as well, um, which is basically eat whatever you want and let the insulin take care of it. It's just that you're injecting your insulin and people like me who are not diabetic are producing it by our, with our pancreas, right? Right. So it seems like the message that I understand from it all is don't change. We've got you covered. Insulin's got you covered. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of it, to be fair to endocrinologists, is people were probably just, I'm sure they would love for people to be on a low carb or low sugar diet, but people are non-compliant. So then they probably have pivoted to say, okay, fine, eat whatever you want, but make sure you give yourself insulin. You know, so I can understand how it's gotten to where it is today because yeah. it's better to at least have somebody taking insulin than just totally going off the rails. Right. And, and in my humble opinion, and again, I'm, I'm not a diabetic, but in my opinion, part of that problem is our definition of what regular or normal diet is which is problematic because it's that sort of normal in air quotes that is causing this problem. And then the non-compliance is part of that bigger problem. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Yes. So it's like we're blaming the non-compliance on, you know, the, the fact that people are, are not going to change their diet. But is it also because what is considered to be a normal diet is kind of not causing diabetes because I mean I ate it for ages and I never got diabetes but it's it's not helping let's say it that way yeah no I, I couldn't agree with you more and you know just I, I mean I see it with you know my friends my family I mean it's just it, it's become very standard whether you're in America or not the standard American diet seems to be worldwide now it's just that's the way food has progressed over time it's cheap it's easy to produce and that's just where the world is headed. And there's not a lot of education around what people are eating. Right, right. So no wonder nobody wants to comply. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. It's harder to comply than not comply, you know? Right, exactly. So, and when all the cheap, readily available food is the food that um, will spike your blood sugar, <laughs> then what else are you going to be eating anyway? Yeah, I mean, it really takes a concerted effort to be on the lookout for the food that will nourish your body and also not spike your blood sugar. Now, interestingly with type one diabetes, I'm kind of like a, my own walking science experiment. So 
you know, I see people in Facebook groups and they're like, oh, this thing won't spike your blood sugar. It'll be like some keto pasta or something like that. We'll be like, oh yeah, let me try that. And I'm like, nope, same as regular pasta that still spikes your blood sugar, you know? So it, it's uh, a lot of the food choices we make are based on marketing, but I can tell you, you know, flour, sugar, all these things will definitely, without a doubt, spike your blood sugar. Yeah. And I'd say whether you're diabetic or not. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, your blood sugar, when you eat those things might spike up to 160 and then come right back down to 80. But mine, you know, if I let it go without giving myself insulin, I'll be at three or 400. Right. So we both have a spike in our blood sugar. It's just that my pancreas will bring it down with insulin and yours won't. So you have to inject the insulin. Right. But you, even if as a non-diabetic, you're subject to the roller coaster, because even if you're only going up from 100 to 160 and then back down again, that's still a 60 point rise. It'll, it'll make you a little tired. It, you know, it may trigger other hunger later after you, because the thing with the roller coaster is a lot of, a lot of times when you go low, high, and then you drop down low, very fast, and you're, you're in that low range, your body forces you to eat something because your blood sugar is low. So the same thing can happen to you where, you know, 100, 160, 100, you're going to start to feel hungry just because that change is so dramatic, even for you, that it's going to trigger your hunger as well. So it's the best thing you can do is to try to keep your insulin levels steady and, and try to make food choices that are not going to be putting you on the roller coaster. Right, right. And again, whether you're diabetic or not, that's good advice for everybody. Right. And with what's the so-called low carb way of eating which I also take issue with as a not as a concept but a, as a as the name for it because I don't I don't consider it is low carb <laughs> it's only low compared to the extremely high carb way of eating but be that as it may as along with that you also found intermittent fasting and started that right I just want to take a quick break to introduce you to my partner for this podcast, Medicine with Heart, which is an international functional medicine clinic specializing in difficult chronic cases of hormone imbalance, Lyme disease, mold illness, and digestive dysfunction. You can sign up for a consultation with their team to see if they can help reverse your disease. Find out more about them at medicinewithheart.com. Yeah, so I can give you a little backstory on intermittent fasting. So I, my, my entire adult life, I get up to, I'm four feet 11. So I get up to 123 pounds, which is always sort of my high watermark. And I know it's not a lot of weight for a lot of other people, but for me, that's, if you go on the BMI chart, which I know a lot of people disagree with, if you go on the BMI chart after 123 above, that is considered overweight for my height. So I never, I always have been like, I got to stay under 123 my whole adult life. So I get up to 123 and then I go down. My goal weight is always 113 pounds. But anyway, I got, had gotten up to 123 pounds. This was in May, 2021. Again, I've been on this cycle for years now. And I listened to a podcast uh, for type one diabetics and Jen Stevens was on it. It's called the juice box podcast. And she was talking about intermittent fasting and at the time, the host, you know, he said, I don't really know anybody with type one that does intermittent fasting. And Jen said, I don't know either, but it probably would be helpful. And so I thought, you know what, let me try this. I, I had tried intermittent fasting a couple of years prior, but I was doing dirty fasting and it just didn't work for me. And so this time I did it, I did the clean fasting. And when I started intermittent fasting, 
a couple months in now I do, I do uh, one meal a day with intermittent fasting, but I noticed my taste started changing. And at the time in May, 2021, I was eating all the things. Um, and to be clear, my diet isn't totally perfect now. Like I like, and I'm not completely, I'm not a no carb person. I'll have a small amount of rice or maybe a half a piece of bread with what I eat. Cause I feel good having some amount of carb in my system, but I it's dramatically reduced from where it was prior. But so, yeah, so I started, yeah, uh, I heard that podcast in July, late July, early August, 2021, started that moved into OMAD and probably a couple months into my intermittent fasting journey, I noticed my taste started changing and I'm a person that has eaten dessert with every single meal of my whole life, pretty much. You know, when I was a kid, my parents deprived me of desserts. And so I just went nuts when I became an adult and I would eat dessert after every single meal, whether it was a piece of chocolate or something, or a piece of cake, I always had to have something sweet after every single meal. And so anyway, I started with intermittent fasting. I started, I, I still had my dessert because it was, I was OMAD and I was doing the dessert. But then I noticed when I had it at the end of my eating window, my blood sugars would be really wild after my meal finished. So I thought, okay, why don't I move my dessert to the beginning of my eating window? And then I can deal with any fallout that happens during my eating window so that I don't have to break my fast for a low blood sugar that may happen later. So then I started doing that. And then I started getting full much faster. And then I started thinking to myself, I don't want to eat this dessert. I'm just eating it out of habit, but it's like wasting calories that could be used for more nutritious food. Cause I'm getting full so much faster and I'm just blowing it on this stupid dessert that I don't even want anymore. And so then I just said, you know what? I'm going to see, I'm going to experiment. And I was actually, it was right around this time that I heard you on um, Graham Curry's uh, fast. Graham the fast, Curry's, the fasting yeah. highway. Yeah. The fasting highway. Yeah. You were on there and you were, you were talking about your, your experiences. And I thought, Hey, she totally cut out sugar. That wasn't even like a, a thought in my head. And so I listened to that and then I thought, all right, let me try that. And so I did it. And so now I, you know, I have, I've essentially cut out sugar. Now I'm not going to say that Every once in a while, I might not, you know, if it's a special occasion or something, might have like a half or a quarter piece of cake or something like that. But for the most part, I do not eat dessert or anything sweet uh, in my eating window. And it's, I've noticed a dramatic improvement in my blood sugars because sugar is, is very difficult. I have found personally, maybe other type ones have a different experience for me to dose insulin for. Yeah, it would be. Yes, I'm sure it would be. And do you feel that you're missing out? You're depriving yourself now that you don't eat dessert anymore? No, actually, I don't. And it's funny because I actually kind of get stressed out when I know dessert is going to be involved. Like when I went to Thanksgiving, I had quit sugar. This was like two weeks in and I knew there was going to be dessert there. I knew my best friend's mom was uh, had made a beautiful dessert. And then I was just thinking to myself, I really don't want to eat this dessert, but like, you know, it's rude not to. So I had some, but the whole time I was like, now I've got to deal with the blood sugar issue again. And I just, I was really stressed out about it. I actually feel more calm and relaxed, not eating dessert. I feel happier this way. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And would you have ever imagined yourself saying that if I'd have asked you before you cut sugar? No. In fact, I listened to an earlier one of your podcasts and you were saying that you're the type of person people would be like, oh, Netta's coming over. We're going to bake some cakes. That's, yeah. that was me, you know, Lucy, yeah. I mean, can you imagine I'm the type one diabetic and everybody's like, bake some cakes, Lucy's coming over, but that's how it was. Yeah. Cause I, I loved eating it. Right. Exactly. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no value judgment or anything going on. I'm just amazed 
for myself and for you, you know, how that kind of, again, I'm talking about the, the way we see things as being normal, that kind of normal way of seeing things, you know, I'm the dessert queen, you've got to have a dessert at the end of every meal, how that has completely changed and yet you're not suffering. No, no. And, you know, I'm at a point now because I've had diabetes for 24 years now and I have had complications with my diabetes. And I think a lot of people that are well into their, into having diabetes have, have experienced this as well. And I just feel like this is a time where I have to take care of my body and the desserts are not helping. So I, I kind of wish I had figured this out earlier, but I guess better late than never. <laughs> oh yeah, better late than never. And you're certainly earlier than I ever was, <laughs> you know? And uh, exactly. And, you know, if you're happy with how you're eating and how you're not eating, how you're fasting, I don't see where the problem is. Yeah, yeah. It's a total shift in mindset, but it's one, I mean, you know, I... I talked to my partner about this a lot because when I started intermittent fasting, he's like, you're not going to be able to keep this going. This is like a, this is a fad diet. This is just not going to last. But now, you know, that I've been into it for, you know, six, seven months, whatever it is fully into it. I, I just can't imagine going back. I don't want to eat that much food anymore. I don't want to eat three meals a day. Like the thought of that just makes my stomach hurt to think that I would actually eat that much food. And the thought of having being forced to eat sugar every day again and messing up my blood sugars. I just, I don't want to do that again. I felt so terrible with bad blood sugars. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. You don't want to go back to something that made you feel awful. Why would you? Right. Yeah. yeah. And you're not doing this for your weight because, you know, okay. You're, you said you're 4'11", 123 pounds at your highest. You know, right. like me, I'm five two. At my highest, I was 130 pounds. It's you know, when you in, if you compare with the average, it's still small, right? So, objectively speaking, you didn't need to lose a lot of weight, but it did it stabilize your weight at a good level for you? Yeah, actually, I have a really funny story related to that. So I started at 123 pounds. And I was doing, I started out um, like a 16-8 and then uh, for my, for my intermittent fasting protocol. So I did 16-8 and then I quickly moved to 17-7 and then I did 19-5 and I was thinking, how am I going to eat two meals a day in five hours? Like that doesn't work. And so then I moved to OMAD. Um, and so the weight was- meal a day, just for those who don't yeah, know. Yeah, sorry. I'm not those. everybody's an intermittent faster, right? On your podcast. So yeah, so I moved to one meal a day. And the weight was really just falling off very fast. And it's interesting, my insulin needs as in this, we can talk about this a little bit later, but my insulin needs just went just way, 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 way down as I was doing this, which is another huge benefit. But so, you know, the weight just fell off. And then, so I hit a hundred pounds. First of all, I told you, I never, my goal weight always was 113 pounds. Any diet I ever tried, I always tried to get to 113 pounds. I'd be like, I did it. I'm done. See you later you know, and then I go back up to 123 and we'll do this whole thing over and over and over again. So anyway, I got to hundred pounds, which was just like, no way. This is like, I mean, incredible, like just totally incredulous that this had happened. So then I got to hundred pounds and then I was like, you know what? I, this is around the time that I had this epiphany that I didn't want to eat sugar anymore. And, and so I cut the sugar out and seven pounds just fell off without me trying. I wasn't eating any less food, nothing. It was just that I cut the sugar 
So were you and down to 93 pounds or were you already at 107? And went I, I was at 100 when I was still eating everything, you know, my okay. regular diet, just, you know, just doing intermittent fasting. And then, you know, once I cut the sugar that when I, when I, I, I was at hundred pounds, once I cut the sugar, I just fell to 93 with literally no other changes. And is that a healthy weight for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely like it's so I went from the high end of the normal range on the BMI to like the low end of the normal range. But I feel I feel very healthy at 93 pounds. I feel like this is the correct weight. My insulin needs are way down. My blood sugar is much easier for me to manage. I feel like this is the correct weight. And I've been able to maintain it for like the last two, two months or so Great. without any issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, if you're a type one diabetic or type two or not a diabetic at all, you need to be able to have insulin doing its job in your body. But I think what people don't tell us, uh, or not enough at least, is that you don't actually need that much insulin. And as a type one diabetic, you don't need more insulin than a non-diabetic, or do you? Uh, I don't know exactly how the translation works, but all diabetics need, type one diabetics need, what's called a, a basal insulin, which is your baseline insulin. That's if you're not eating, you're just alive. You need a basal insulin and then you need a bolus insulin for every time you eat. So both my basal insulin and my bolus insulin went down when I started intermittent fasting. And then when I cut sugar, it went down even further. So the beauty of fasting is you, all you have is your basal insulin in the background, your background insulin. So that's, that's much easier to deal with. Bolus insulins are larger amounts of insulin and so at that point, that could cause your blood sugar to go low. So you, you're trying to keep your boluses as small as possible so that you can, you know, keep yourself off the roller coaster. So the combination between the intermittent fasting and cutting out sugar just has greatly reduced the insulin that I have going in my body at all times. And it's just, it, it keeps you very stable that way. Yeah, yeah. So it keeps your blood sugar stable, which in turn keeps your insulin stable and lower. And really, that's what you're looking for. Whereas, as far as I can tell, the, the sort of common advice for diabetics is, as we were saying before, eat all the things, carry on, and just give yourself the insulin that will bring your sugar levels down. But I mean, that means that you're actually stimulating insulin, whether it's from your pancreas or from an injection, um, more often than it needs to be stimulated. How can they give you that type of advice where does that advice come from? I mean, I think I think it goes back to the issue of just non-compliance and the idea that if you throw a pill at something or you throw an injection at something, and that's that's secure because people don't want to actually do the work. I mean, I, I say the work, but it's honestly once you once you get past your mental barriers and you go through maybe a week of adjustment or maybe not even a week, you know, you you really it's it's really not that hard to do. It's just you got to want to do it and you got to want to feel better and you got to understand that feeling better is a possibility for you. Yeah. And the other things than medication or injections are also a possibility for you, because that's my point. I mean, what you were telling me is that nobody really mentioned sort of dealing with your type one diabetes through diet or at least partly through diet. So how can we give the advice of taking medications and then say, yes, but if they don't, people aren't compliant. Yes, but you haven't given them a choice. Yeah. And in fact, I haven't been to a, when I first got diagnosed with diabetes, they, they had, I had one session with a nutritionist 
And if the advice, now remember this is 1997, things probably have changed. I haven't had another session with one because I, I found that one to be completely useless, but it was just like, you know, eat a lot of carbs, um, you know, just take your insulin. You're going to take X number of units, eat this many carbs with your meal. And it was, it was, it was a lot. And um, yes, you can still eat your dessert. Just make sure you give this amount of insulin. And it, it, it wasn't really helpful, but I think you're right. If there was more messaging around, Hey, look, and, and just to get people to understand, I think part of the problem is you just assume everybody's stupid and they don't understand. If you tell people and they get it, then they're more likely to make the changes. But if you never tell them, then they, they have no chance of getting it. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not that we're stupid. It's just that the the information is not being given. How can you ex and I say this as a teacher, you know, how can you expect people to know stuff if you don't teach them stuff? Well, and I don't know how the, the health system is in, in Canada, but in the United States, I mean, unfortunately, the doctors are so jammed. They have so many patients. I see my do doctor once a quarter and my doctor that I have now is the best endocrinologist I've ever had throughout the course of having diabetes. And so I see her once a quarter, maybe once every six months. Sometimes I see the nurse practitioner that she works with. Um, and, you know, we talk for 15, 20, 30 minutes, maybe, you know, so it's not, there's not enough time. I think it's a, it's a general failing of the health system in general, you know, more than, you know, individual doctors or them not getting the information across. They just don't have, they simply don't have the time. And the, the problem is so large with so many people with type two and so many people with type one, they just, they can't handle the, the load. Yes. Yes. And in one of my podcast episodes, I was talking with Michelle Hearn, who's the author of the dietitian's dilemma. And she was saying, you know, similar things like she quit her job as a dietitian because she was kind of forced, you know, to give the, this type of advice that she didn't even agree with. Um, and I would argue that it probably takes as much time, if not less time, for a health professional to give one type of advice, in other words, eat this and not that, than it does to say, you know, take this pill or this medication and not that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and as long as we as a society consider that the standard American diet, that's a high carb diet, is the norm, you know, and then blame us as citizens or consumers or patients for not being compliant, it will make no sense. It will just continue to, to be a medication based approach. Yeah, and I find that, you know, the more people I speak to that have type one and type two, when they actually make a lifestyle change, it's, you know, it's, it's just like anything else you hit rock bottom. You know, I've had a lot of complications over my life. A lot of other people that I've talked to that have type two, their weight was at an incredibly high level. Their blood sugars were also really high and they just felt terrible. And then they had it, they figured it out. They bought, you know, Dr. Jason Fung's books or whatever the case may be. And then they educated themselves, but it, you know, it would be better if our society as a whole was more preventative in its thinking than, you know, reactive to something that's you know you're too far gone already you know right right and you know I guess it's up to us to as patients or you know as consumers to educate ourselves because from what I can tell we're not being educated by anyone else yeah and that's why I think you know platforms like your podcast are really helpful because it's good to hear stories of people that have been able to do this. And it's, you just need that support. You need that like kind of kick to, to get yourself going in the right direction. And you need to hear more and more of that messaging, which has been, you know, very silent over at least 
for most of the time that I've had type one diabetes, I haven't really heard much about it. And I feel like it's now becoming more mainstream, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And just to finish off, you know, I'm curious to know if you've had pushback either from the medical community or from friends and family about you fasting as a type one diabetic. Yes. Uh, I definitely have gotten some, you know, some comments like, well, how are you going to do this if you get a low blood sugar? And in fact, I'm a member of a couple of different Facebooks, Facebook groups and people, I would ask questions in the group, like, Hey, you know, this is when I first started, Hey, how do you guys manage your, um, insulin when you're fasting? What it, what happens if you get a low blood sugar? Do you just count that fast as like, just, a, you know, start over the next day? Like, how do you think about it? And the admins would remove it and say, you know, you're asking for medical advice. You can't do that. Type ones shouldn't be fasting. And so I felt like very alone. Um, and I heard it from friends and family, like what happens if you get a low blood sugar? Are you going to die? You're fasting. I'm like, yes, I'm fasting, but it doesn't mean that if I get a low blood sugar, I'm not going to treat it. I'm always going to treat a low blood sugar if I need to, you know, same way that I always have. And I treat it and then I pretend like it never happened. And, you know, I continue on with my fast. If I, if I stopped my fast every time I treated a low blood sugar, then I would never make it through a single fast probably. I mean, I probably, you know, I fast every single day and, you know, out of a week, I probably make it three or four days with a full fast without getting a low blood sugar. Those other days I get a low blood sugar and you know what? I treat it, you know? And, and did you use, did you used to get low blood sugar when you weren't fasting? I got low blood sugars when I wasn't fasting. Nothing's changed. I treat it exactly the same way. So that's the funny thing is it's just, it's the same. Yeah. Nothing's changed except that you feel better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely, I, I think a lot of doctors either don't understand what intermittent fasting is. Um, you know, so I, I, I haven't heard about it from any of my doctors. My doctor now who's great. She says, I don't really know much about intermittent fasting, but it seems to be working for you. So keep doing what you're doing, like carry on. Yeah. Um, great. Great. You know, what more can you hope for? And same thing with not eating sugar. Have, have you come across people that are shocked and horrified? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not really socially acceptable to not eat sugar. Yep. Yeah. You're <laughs> you know? telling me. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And so if you're like, no, nah, I don't want that dessert. I'm like what's wrong with you? Why, you know, why aren't you eating that dessert? And you know, it's, it's you know, sometimes I tell people like, Hey, I'm just, easing off the sugar. And sometimes I play the diabetes card, which it doesn't come in handy that often, but I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm a type one diabetic. I really got to clean up my diet. And they're like, Oh, sorry, sorry. I didn't say anything, you know? So sometimes I play that card to just, you know, and then it doesn't come up again. You, you don't have that benefit, but <laughs> no, I don't. I, I just say, Oh, because it's my podcast or I, no. I know I don't play any card. I just say, no, thanks. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's, that's a great, that's a perfect response too. But I find that like if people keep pressing me, especially since they knew me as somebody that loved sugar so much, it was yes. such a big change. It's yeah. understandable that, you know, you, you yourself are going through changes that not everyone is aware of, obviously. Um, although I, I myself was quite public about it as I was going through the process at the beginning and I'll publish it in a book one day, <laughs> one day soon. Um, but, you know, it's, it's normal that other people are not where you are they're not on the path with you so if you go from dessert loving you know lucy to no thanks no desserts for me for me it's normal that people will be shocked right yeah but i also am getting positive feedback too you know i've lost a lot of weight i think i 
I look really toned now, despite not really exercising that much. Um, and you know, people are like, what are you doing? And so sometimes that sparks positive conversation. It's not all negative. Um, yeah. but yeah, yeah it's, it's been, it's been an experience. It's been an experience. I'm sure it has. Yes. And you know, when people ask me, how do you do that? How do you get all this energy? How do you look, you know, so slim and then you're in your fifties, it doesn't show. And I, when I tell them how I do it, they're like, oh no, it's okay. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard change. It's a hard, it's hard in concept, the change, but once you put it into practice, and I do think for me, especially, I don't think if I had started, if I hadn't done intermittent fasting, I don't know that I would have been able to quit sugar because it really just changed my entire mindset. It, it, it gave me a sense of control that I never had before. Um, and I don't think that it, if I, if I hadn't done intermittent fasting, I'm pretty sure I would still be on, on sugar, <laughs> but you know, the two don't have to go hand in hand. No, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it, they often end up going hand in hand, but they don't have to. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think this is very inspiring for people who have diabetes type one or type two or none at all. You know, for everybody to see that, first of all, you've taken your health into your own, own hands with, of course, medical supervision. Um, but you've also educated yourself and empowered yourself. And that in itself is something that, you know, you, that doesn't cost anything. It just requires some open-mindedness on your part, I think. Right. Yes, I agree. And I would love to, you know, I'm really trying hard to get the message out further because I think it's a really powerful tool for everybody, especially people with diabetes. Totally. And you have a podcast, don't you? Yes, I do. It's called The Fast Life with Diabetes. And um, it's type one and type two diabetics talking about their experiences with intermittent fasting. And like me, most people have made changes to their diet over time. So it's just real world examples of people. The type two people that I've had on the podcast thus far have all been able to reverse their type two diabetes through intermittent fasting and, and diet. And the type one, same as me, huge insulin reductions over time, much steadier blood sugars. I mean, it's, it's incredible that just making very simple changes to your lifestyle can really make a huge difference. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. I'll put the link to your podcast with the show notes. And um, thank you so much for talking to me. Amazing. Thank you, Ned. I appreciate it. Well, there you go. Another myth busted by Lucy, who found that intermittent fasting wasn't dangerous for her type 1 diabetes. It was actually helpful. Who'd have guessed? And when she changed her diet, she also found that her insulin response was much more stable and this helped dose her insulin needs. And therefore, it was way easier for her to be compliant because she could see the benefits of changing her diet and by association, her lifestyle, which includes intermittent fasting. And if you're looking for more information about the link between sugar and intermittent fasting, then go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the Learn More button to go to my FAQ section where I explain, like only a teacher can, about sugar, hunger, intermittent fasting, and also gut health and fermented foods. Head on over to aftersugarclub.com. You can also grab my list of top 10 books about sugar, intermittent fasting and gut health because, you know, knowledge is power.
And I don't want you to spend the hundreds of hours that I spent reading through dozens of books. So that's why I want to give you my list of top 10 books. And even if you only read one or two of them, it'll make a huge difference in how you see sugar, intermittent fasting and gut health. And you can download that list at aftersugarclub.com and click on the orange Learn More button. And if you're an intermittent faster, then I have five tips for you to help get rid of cravings that may be getting in the way of the easy and natural intermittent fasting lifestyle that you're looking for. You'll find those at aftersugarclub.com. You can also find lots of free resources on the Life After Sugar YouTube channel, on the Life After Sugar Facebook page, and come and subscribe to my Instagram, which is at mylifeaftersugar, where I post pictures of what I eat, what I do, and sometimes pictures of our cat, (laughs) so that you can see that it is totally possible to live an active, happy, and fun life even if you don't eat sugar. And for a deeper dive into your relationship with sugar and how you can work towards freeing yourself from the hold that sugar has on you so that you can get to that place of joyful freedom from sugar that I've been living for almost seven years and experience what it feels like not to want, need or even miss sugar anymore, then the After Sugar Club is for you. Check it out at aftersugarclub.com. And if this podcast is inspiring you to take one more step towards your life after sugar, then could I ask you to please scroll down and leave the podcast a lovely five-star rating and leave a short review to let me know how this podcast is inspiring you to break free from sugar your way and find the real sweetness in life. And if this is your first time here, don't forget to subscribe to the Life After Sugar podcast so that it appears magically in your podcast player every Sunday. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.